listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Tonight is our missions conference. I hope that you'll set aside um, this evening. I don't know what you've got planned, but cancel it and come join us. If you're a, a serious, devoted follower of Jesus Christ, missions should be very important to you. The gospel, not only in your community and not only across our nation, but the gospel going out around the world. And so uh, we've got some folks that we're in relationship with, um, that we're proud uh, to be connected to, that are committed to taking the gospel. And so we have resources um, every week, every month, every year that are devoted to getting the gospel out around the world. And it's our privilege tonight to have Mark Lewis. Where is Mark? I right in front of me right here okay he always looks so young I thought that was a teenager sitting down there um, but Mark is going to be our speaker tonight I've known Mark for I guess probably over 20 years and uh, the longer I know him the more I'm impressed with him and his work um, with college students through campus outreach and so there's a lot going on in that arena if you want to find uh, the heartbeat of paganism uh, go go to the college campuses and um, and atheism um, and so Mark is there on the front lines. He's going to be sharing tonight. We'll have tables set up. Mike Bailey has uh, put together our missions conference. We'll have tables set up where you'll be able to understand more about what our missionaries are doing, where your mission dollars are going, and maybe the Lord would uh, just uh, challenge your heart uh, to give. There are so many projects that are going on right now that, that we have the privilege of being a part of. So please let me encourage you as a follower of Jesus Christ um, join us tonight. Uh, I promise you that you will not regret it. We're in the book of Daniel, uh, part five this morning, Daniel chapter two, beginning in verse 17. I want to go back and catch what we looked at last week, just ever so briefly, so that you'll have some context for what we're going to be talking about this morning. But the title of my message this morning would be A Raging King, A Risk-Taking Prophet, and A Revealing God. Uh, a Raging King, A Risk-Taking Prophet, and A Revealing God. This man, Nebuchadnezzar, that has sort of been the focal point of the book of Daniel up to this point, um, is very prominent in Scripture. We see him mentioned over and over again. He was a genius, a very intelligent man. He was an architect. He was an educator. He was a philosopher, and at this time, probably the most powerful man in the world. And like your average world ruler, he wondered what was next. He wondered when he would pass off the scene, what the future would hold. And in the current, these men were generally paranoid. They were worried about somebody trying to assassinate them. They were worried about somebody trying to take their power. They were worried about somebody trying to take their kingdom. And so these paranoid kings like Nebuchadnezzar were also scheming. They wanted to make sure that they could preserve their power and preserve their control as long as as possible. And so the setup for the scene that we're looking at here is Nebuchadnezzar is thinking about those things. He goes to bed, he lays on his bed, he's thinking about what's next. And all of a sudden, God divinely gives this man, this pagan godless king, Nebuchadnezzar, this dream that is the unfolding of redemptive history. And that is absolutely amazing that God would come and give this dream to this king. Let me just say several things that we talked about last week. And the thing that we focused on last week was Nebuchadnezzar, this man who is in control and how he really isn't in control, but he's struggling to be in control, much like we struggle to be in control of everything within us and everything outside of us, and it never ends up well. But here's, here's what we looked at last week. First of all, he had a troubling dream. This dream shook him to the core of his being. It was disturbing. He probably saw himself and his kingdom in this dream, but he also looked hundreds of years into the future. Secondly, I don't believe that Nebuchadnezzar could remember his dream clearly. The details in his mind were sketchy, but I do believe 
that the, the emotional impact of what he experienced in those dreams, how they affected his mind, how they affected his heart, were inescapable. And so there is this, these dreams and the impact on him internally that he's struggling with. Thirdly, he knew it meant something significant, but he didn't know what. Fourthly, he called the dream experts in and made an, an unusual demand. He said, First of all, tell me the dream, and secondly, tell me the interpretation of the dream. Quite frankly, that was impossible. Their normal practice would be if somebody had a dream, because these magicians and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans and this list of people that we talked about last week, these, these people were experts in dream interpretation. You say, how are they experts? Quite frankly, dream interpretation for them was a very scientific endeavor. They would take all the dreams that they had heard, they would record them in books, they would then look at the outcomes of those dreams. Therefore, when anybody went and had a dream, they would go back to the precedent of the dream books and say, based on this dream in the past and this outcome in the past, that you've had this kind of dream, and with, with a high degree of possibility, this is probably going to be the outcome of that dream. That is the way they interpreted dreams. It was kind of like you walk into a lawyer's office, you're looking at all of these books. What, what are these books? Many of them are decisions that lawyers have made based on their understanding or that courts have made based on their understanding of the Constitution. Lawyers have argued their case. Judges have made decisions on this case based on the Constitution, and therefore that establishes some precedent. Well, the, 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 the dreams, there was some precedent established for this type of dream. And so these people were interpreting these dreams based on the dream reference library. It was a scientific process. But if they could not give the content of the dream, and this is what the king is demanding. This is the unusual thing. This is the impossible thing. Give me the content of my dream and give me the interpretation of my dream. And if you don't give me the content Tell me what I dreamed and tell me what the interpretation is. I'm going to rip you limb from limb. I'm going to destroy your houses. I'm literally going to make your house probably a, a, a dunghill, in other words, an outhouse, and I'm going to remove any remembrance of you or your family or your history. So when we come to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 17, this process has been set in motion. I'd like to begin reading there, a raging king a risk-taking prophet, and a revealing God. And let me just say this from the outset. Our greatest need is not for us to be in control of our present or future. Our greatest need is to trust the God who is. Our greatest need is not to be in control of our present or our future. Our greatest need is to trust the God who is. Daniel chapter 2, verse 17 then Daniel went to his house, so he's, and, and I'll go back and catch verse 16. Um, Daniel has, in curiosity, asked Arioch, the, the guy that's the, the executioner, the, the professional executioner, he said, Arioch, why is the king so hasty about making this decision? And y'all are gathering up all the wise men in the kingdom, and you're going to kill all of them. What in the world is going on? And so, uh, Daniel amazingly has audience with Arioch so that he can express some curiosity about what's going on and ask a question. Then Arioch made the matter, verse, um, the, the middle of verse 15, then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Right. So here's Daniel making a promise. I'll, I'll give you the dream and I'll give you the interpretation. Now we're in verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house or his dormitory, or whatever it was, and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his companions. The word companions is important. I think we'll try to get something out of that for us today. And told them to seek mercy. We're up against something that we don't have the resources, we don't have the capacity, we don't have the ability to fix or to resolve. So seek mercy mercy. We need something from God that is outside of our ability to resolve this issue. He told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel. Here is a, a revealing 
God in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. The, the word dwells literally means that the light is just released from him. Right? This is a, a beautiful picture. We, we dwell in darkness. We, apart from the revelation of God, are in darkness. Please hear that this morning. Apart from God's revealing of himself to you and me, we are literally in literal spiritual, uh, mental, every, everything you can think of. We are in darkness. But there is revelation that comes, and it, it is ushered in, and he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. If you're with him, you're in the light. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, he went and said thus to him, do not destroy. It's interesting that Daniel goes, and we'll see this in our outline this morning, Daniel goes from, from curiosity to literally being in control to telling Arioch what to do and what not to do. It's interesting. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king. I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. And said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? So here we see Daniel being curious and asking questions. And now, because of all of the things that Daniel has done and what God has done in his life, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is curious and asking Daniel questions. It's good when you get to that point when you're dealing with people that are lost. It's good when they're asking you questions. And so Daniel entertains this question, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel, this risk-taking prophet, answered the king and said, no, no, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show you can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. There is nobody on the face of this earth that can do that. But there is a God in heaven, and he is the God of Israel, and he is the God that I called upon, and he reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay on your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts, and he's telling him exactly what happened to him. He's, he's like, this guy must know something about me because he's telling me exactly what I was doing as I was laying there wondering what was going on. Verse 29, to you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, the mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And the word mind there is literally in the Hebrew heart, your internal uh, being. So what do we see in the text? First of all, we, we go from desperation to revelation. Daniel is going from desperation to revelation. Daniel makes the promise in chapter, um, in, in verse 16, I will give the interpretation. Certainly there's a concern. I believe there's a concern on Daniel's part. He, he put himself out there. He took a risk, but then he immediately goes to his house and he gets with his brothers and he asked them to pray, but he's doing that based on what is described of Daniel in chapter 1 and verse number 17. And if, if you look at that, here's what chapter 1 and verse 17 says. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, Daniel didn't know what the dream was, and Daniel didn't know what the interpretation was at the point that he made the promise to give that, and then he goes and says, let's seek the God of heaven. But Daniel makes this 
promise. But he didn't need the dream books. He didn't need the book How to Interpret Dreams for Dummies. He needed God to show up mightily for him to make good on his promise. And so there's the promise. But secondly, there is the prayer. And I want to point out several things about the prayer. Daniel goes to um, these three comrades, these three companions of his, and he says, we have a dilemma and we don't have the human resources or ingenuity to resolve this dilemma. We have a dilemma, but we don't have the, the human resources or the human ingenuity to resolve this dilemma. And the text is clear, and it uses the word twice. He made the matter known to his companions. In other words, we see Daniel taking prayer requests to his DNA group, if you will. It's, it's okay for fellow believers to have some place of connection. You say, hey, man, you're just trying to sell DNA. You're trying to sell life group. You're trying to encourage us to get connected to other believers. Y'all say an awful lot uh, about that. And we see it clearly in the scriptures here this morning. I'm even going to drive the point home further as we look at the words but please understand, there is this prayer request to his brothers, and they have this prayer meeting, and they together seek the Lord. There's something biblical about that, in the very least by description, but also by clear prescription from Scripture. Just to point out some words, the word that he uses here in the text is companions. The word companions, listen carefully, it means to unite, it means to be joined, it means to be connected, it means to be tied together. It means to tie a magical knot. It says, though someone re relationally has had a spell cast on them. In other words, there's something between these brothers, this band of brothers that has created this beautiful relational affinity. There is this beautiful relational affinity. There is something that connects them Together that is beyond reason or task. It's, it's not just some guys that agreed theologically, but something was happening internally. Something was happening spiritually. Something was happening supernaturally. They were brothers tied together by the power and purpose of God, and that connection between them was unbreakable. There was a relational closeness so that they could look at each other and say, you are my ride or die, whatever that means. And I looked it up. You are my ride or die. There is this sense of loyalty that is between us, that is beyond just a rational commitment that we've made to one another, but it, it, it is a sense in which God has supernaturally, by His grace and power, knitted our hearts together relationally so that there's something absolutely beautiful that is going on between us. There is a oneness like no one else can experience except the Father and the Son, according to John 17, 21. He said, I want you to be one. I want you human beings who know Jesus Christ to be one. But then he gives us the definition of that oneness. Father, as you and I are one, there is this, this Trinitarian fellowship, this beauty of relationship that exist, I believe, between these men that should exist between us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, tells us that we're like a building that is built and we're interconnected and there's a cornerstone that holds us together and the cornerstone is Jesus Christ and everything else in the structure is interdependent upon everything else in the structure. The, this building has got some Civil War termites in it, I guarantee you. We have had all kinds of treatments that go on here, and you can look at the post, and you can tell that the termites have been eating through it. Evidently, it's pretty solid, but perchance if some termite was to eat into one of these posts or one of these beams, and I think there is a superhighway right down this whole section here. You may not want to sit there next week. Some of you can see these posts over here, and they're kind of leaning in. But I believe if one post collapses, the whole place is probably going to fall. Yeah. 
In other words, everything is interdependent upon everything else. Our lives together are like a structure, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 4, verse 16 says, we are fitly framed together. We are, we are like joints that supply one another so that my hand is important, my forearm is important, my bicep is really important. Right? And, and there's this interconnectivity where everything just works together. Everything is dependent upon everything else. So there is this, this beauty of relationship. This beautiful relational affinity. It's not unlike Genesis 2.25 where they were naked and unashamed. Where they were fully known and fully exposed and fully loved. And that is what is happening in this relationship. And that is what is supposed to be happening in the body of Christ. Where we are fully known and fully loved. And as your pastor, I stand before you this morning. And I long for that for us. I long for that for you. For us to have this companionship. There is in this context... Even if you're in exile, even if the world is collapsing in around you, even if Arioch is coming and he's got the executioner's sword and everybody is going to be killed, there is just something that is strengthening and empowering and beautiful and encouraging even in the worst of times when we are connected at the heart with brothers and sisters in Christ. There is a relief, there is a joy, there is a, a depressurization when we are fully known. And by the way, all of us long to be fully loved. We do. That's, that's why John 3.16 is so powerful, for God so loved. God is love. And we long to be fully loved. We are so exhausted from, from all of our fig leaves, from all of our hiding, from all of our facades. We, we just, at some point, get exhausted from it and say, I just want to be who I am, and I want to come into your presence, and I want to be around brothers that are going to love me, they're going to help me, they're going to equip me, they're going to disciple me, they're going to mature me. But in that context where we are fully known and fully loved, we have now this opportunity for growth in community. And so that's the first place that Daniel went. Uh, you can't go it alone. Stop trying. People will hurt you. But it's worth the risk. There are no relationships without pain. There are no relationships without dysfunction. There just aren't. But when Christ comes in and knits our hearts together and we find ourselves in exile and we have nowhere else to turn, then we find out this is the community that he has created for us, and this is where life is found. And so I, I just want to challenge you this morning. Be, be willing to take a risk to find this kind of community. You're, you're not going to make it on your own, and everything that you're trying to do on your own and everything that you internalize on your own, there is, there is not a single thing that any of us internalizes that is not impacting us in some obvious way that is noticeable to other people, and we think we're hiding it. We were, we were created to be in community where we can be fully known and fully loved. And that's where life is found. The second thing we see in the text is this, that he comes to them and he's, he's got this very specific re request. He, he's telling them to seek mercy. And verse 18, and he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven. Here's what he's saying. We are going to die unless God does something supernatural. What we are involved in right now is beyond the scope of our resources or our ability. So seek, the word seek means to boil over. It means to gush. So there is this desperation, this intensity, this, this fervency. We're up against an impossible dilemma. So let us seek, let us boil over with, with assaulting the throne of heaven in a plea for Mercy. Mercy is compassion. Mercy is pity. Our greatest need and only solution is the compassion and pity of God to be stirred up toward us. 
Let us seek mercy. Let us, let us assault the throne room of heaven. Although we don't have to assault it, we're welcomed to the throne of grace that we might find help, right? And, and, and there is mercy there in that place. Let us pray that the mercy of God would be stirred up and he would act on our behalf in this particular circumstance. So here's what he's saying. Guys, there's nothing we can do. If God doesn't show up, we're toast. So let us gush out with desperation and crying out to God, for mercy so that he will come and act in this circumstance and deliver us. We need the mercy, the compassion, the pity of God. You and I will die and spend eternity in hell apart from the pity, the mercy, the compassion of God. If you sit here today in your pride and say, you know what, I'll do it on my own. I'll do it by my works. I'll do it by my performance. I'm good enough. I've never really been that bad. I want to tell you that, that you are not in the crosshairs of mercy. But when we cry out to God and we beg and we plead with him for mercy in our humility, in our desperation, in our acknowledgement of our inability to do anything on our own, and in our acknowledgement that in the midst of the trouble that we're in, that the only one that can do anything in the situation that we're in is him. It is then that God responds to us. But if we're in our pride, you're not going to be able to do it on your own. We are helpless we have no hope but deliverance from God, the salvation of God. We're going to die unless God does something. And I love what 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 3 says. And some of you have it memorized, but I'm going to turn over to it this morning. 1 Peter 1, 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I want to tell you this morning that you and I are in deep trouble. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And there's nothing that we can do to get ourselves out of it. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a life that we could not live. He lived a life of perfect righteousness. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. Jesus Christ then, after living a life of perfect righteousness, laid down his life as a sacrifice for our sin, as the perfect sacrifice, as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There's nothing else that could be done to resolve the dilemma of your sin before a holy God than the death of Jesus Christ's payment for your sin. The wages of sin is death. You and I must die because of our sin, but Jesus died because of our sin. And then the Lord Jesus Christ rose rose back to life, defeating sin to live forevermore. And because of His mercy, because of His mercy, He gives us His perfect righteousness. Because of His mercy, our sin debt is paid in full. Because of His mercy, we too have the promise of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We stood here last Saturday at Georgette's funeral and the only hope that we had was not that Georgette came to prayer meeting and not that Georgette went to life group and not that Georgette was a good person and not that Georgette gave. The only hope that Georgette Wingate has is the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. And so he says, seek mercy. Facing death with no way out, God in his mercy made away. That is who God is. God is a merciful God. He is the God of mercy. He is the God of compassion. He is the God of pity. And I would, I would ask you this morning to see your desperate situation that you're in. And I would ask you in your desperation and in humility to recognize you have no hope. You have no hope apart from Jesus Christ. And I would ask you this morning to cry out to him for mercy. The text tells us also that after Daniel and his companions, his ride-or-die crew prayed that, that 
the mystery was revealed to Daniel. The word revealed means to bring over, to uncover, to expose, to make known, to see everything. In other words, Daniel's what Daniel received, what the dream was, the content of the dream, and what Daniel received, the interpretation of the dream, had nothing to do with anything that was in Daniel. Everybody wants to say, this is the kind of guy that God uses. God uses a guy like Daniel. I might as well quit, and you might as well quit too. None of us is going to live up to this standard, at least, that we see in Scripture of this guy, Daniel. And I listened to some sermons this week about how great Daniel was, and I'm just like, I'm turning in my resignation Sunday. There is no way God could use me because I'm not as good as Daniel. But Daniel's own admission and confession here is that this thing was revealed to him. You know why God revealed it to Daniel? Because he didn't reveal it to Nebuchadnezzar. That's why. But God was going to raise up Daniel, and he was going to use Daniel to reveal this to Nebuchadnezzar, to put Daniel in a place of promise because God always has a remnant. Not because Daniel is this amazing guy. And so Daniel is saying that God has revealed that this is not self-discovery. This thing is a blank screen until God puts his revelation on the blank screen. We have this revelation that comes from God. We understand that in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 19. It's impossible or it is possible, though, to know the Word of God and not know Jesus Christ. It is possible to say, I've got the revelation of God and not know Christ. The demons know doctrine frontwards and backwards. They don't believe. What we learn from Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2 is that, that, that revelation came through prophets and came through these different experiences. But in these last days, God's revelation, God's revelation comes in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we go to John chapter 1 and verses 1 to 5. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. And it's written down in Scripture for us as the revelation of God. And so we have this unique revelation of God that is not a dead letter to study like an academic workbook, but it is the living Word of God that points us to Christ, the Savior of the world. And so this revelation comes. God is a revealing God. And then we see in verses 20 to 23, Daniel's praise. So we see from desperation to revelation, we see the promise, the, the desperate prayer. And then thirdly, we see the, the praise, verses 20 to 23. And I've already read it, but let me just give you an overview of, of, of what he's saying here. First of all, he says, I know you, God. I know you. I know your name. That's the kind of God we serve. He's not a God that's that's mysterious in that he's trying to hide from us. God is revealing himself through, through nature, general revelation. God is revealing himself through his word. God is revealing himself through his son. God wants us to know what he's like. God wants us to know who he is. God wants to invite us into fellowship with him through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. So, so he just starts, blessed be the name of God, this God who has revealed himself and his name. You, God, are the ultimate source of all divine wisdom and power. It's not, it's not me, Daniel would say. It's not my wisdom and it's not my power. You, God, are the only source of wisdom and power. It's not Nebuchadnezzar who had the dream. It's not Nebuchadnezzar who is the ruler of the world. It's not Nebuchadnezzar who has brought us into exile and controlling every facet of our lives, even right down to what we eat. It's not him. It's you, God. It's you. And he proclaims that. You are the ultimate source of wisdom and power. You are, and these are three words we learned in introduction to Old Testament, introduction to New Testament, you sit your backside down in a, a first class when you go to Bible college and you learn these three big words and then you think you've got all, all, all of theology figured out when we find out, and this is what Daniel is saying in the text, you are omnipotent, you are omnipresent, you are omniscient. God knows everything, God is everywhere, and God has all power, and there is none any higher or stronger or greater than he is, but he's also telling us that God is personal and God is gracious. He said in the text that you control every political arena, every king, every historical epoch. You uncover and expose everything. The unknowable things that are locked in darkness. 
This is the God that he's calling upon. God, everything that's locked in darkness, everything that no one could possibly know, just like God, I could not possibly know what his dream was or what the interpretation is. But Lord, you know it. You've got it recorded. Nothing is going to slip your mind. And then he says, light dwells. Light is unleashed. In God, light is unrestrained. There is no shadow of turning. There is no darkness in him at all. Listen to me. Apart from God's revelation of himself to us, we are all in darkness. But when we are in him, here's what he's saying. His light is limitless. If we are not in him, we are in darkness. If you are not in Jesus Christ today, if you have not experienced the revelation of God, which is given to us in his word, which is given to us in his son, you are in darkness. But if you are in Christ, the, the light is limitless. The light is unstoppable. John chapter 1 and verse 5 makes that clear. He, the, the, he, he, the light comes into the darkness and the darkness cannot snuff out the light. It can't do it. We live in a world as Christ bearers, those who have Christ in us, and we have the light of Christ. He, he is the light. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And we have the capacity by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit that lives within us to go into the, the, the pagan darkness. And pagan darkness can't stop the light of Christ. He can't do it. We need to trust that. The light overcomes darkness every time. That's why Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Darkness will not be able to stand against light. Our deepest desperation, our most diligent seeking, our passionate pursuit, our deepest desire and hunger and thirst ought to be to know this God who reveals himself, that I may know him. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. We should have this desperation for revelation and that ought to be the driving force behind our prayer life. This is what we see in Daniel. Daniel's, Daniel's desperation for prayer was a deep desire to receive from God what God was saying. And here's what Daniel is saying in his prayer. God, I need to know that you are there. I need to know your presence. Listen, folks, it's not just God giving me a word. It's not just God giving me the winning lottery numbers. I wish he would do that. Just once, right? It's not that. It's not God, you know... Healing sickness or, or causing the flat tire not to go flat. It's, it's not that. It's that God is a God who is relational and personal. And he is with us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It is the presence of God. And that's what Daniel is, 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 is looking into as we consider this text. And Daniel's saying, I need to know that you are there. I need to know your presence. I need to know that you have a plan. That's what Daniel's saying. Our God's got a plan. I need to know, no matter what I'm going through, while I'm here in exile, while I'm going through all that I'm going through, I need to know, Lord, I can endure anything if I know this is a part of your plan. I need to know that you love me. I need to know that I'm related to you. I need to know that you care for me. And I need to know that I will be with you forever. And so Daniel goes from this place of desperation to revelation, to the full light, to the full illumination that God gives him regarding particularly this dream of Nebuchadnezzar that is all of a sudden now going to be the key to life. The revelation of God, the key to life. The third thing we see is this. From curiosity to confidence, verses 24 to 28. From curiosity to confidence. And I see Daniel's curiosity, but I also see his confidence. I already mentioned that to you where he says, he, he's, he's asking questions, what's going on. Finally, he gets to this place where he says, do not destroy. Um, it's, it's, it, it is okay, and I'll just say this in reference to this text. It is okay to know the Bible thoroughly and have the utmost confidence in the truth and still, and still engage people from a vantage point of curiosity. It is okay to be confident in Scripture. It is okay to be confident in God. 
And yet when someone like Arioch shows up, we don't need to go point our finger in their face and remind them of who we are. I remember years ago, I, I was at a church and I left that church and went to another church. And some of the folks at the church that I'd left were calling me and continuing to communicate with me. And they were struggling with some things. And as I talked with them, I said, you know what? They've got a pastor there. And I want to call their pastor and tell them that these folks are struggling. I wanted to try to intercede. I wanted to try to intervene. And I called him and I said, pastor, there's some really good folks here. They love the Lord. They love the church. Um, they're struggling. Um, his first response was, they're messing with a spirit-anointed man of God. They're messing with a spirit-anointed man of God. <laughs> wow. What a, what a shepherd, right? What a man of God. Daniel could have done that here. Daniel could have said, God's got a plan. But no, he says, hey, Ariok, can you tell me? Can you tell me what's going on? on here. He, he used prudence and discretion. He was not aggressive. He was not arrogant. He was not invasive. He was humble. He had genuine curiosity. And, and this is how Daniel navigated life among the most powerful and fearful in exile in Babylon in the jaws of paganism. There was curiosity that, that, that generated among those around him a place where Daniel could speak confidently. There was curiosity. We see Nebuchadnezzar's curiosity, verse 26. We see Daniel's confidence in verse 28. There is something that is disarming about Daniel, and I think we need to take note of it. He is humble yet fearless. He is respectful yet resolved. He knew who he was. He was fully aware of who he stood before in Nebuchadnezzar, but he also knew whose he was, and that is the thing that guided his life. So he didn't have to come out swinging. He didn't have to prove anything. He didn't have to prove that, that God was on his side and he was going to whoop all the pagans. He just moved about them with curiosity. I'd like to just ask you to consider as we think about Daniel, I'd like you to consider, and I think this is, this is, this is massive in how we navigate the world around us. This is massive in how you navigate a, a students on a college campus or how you deal with, with atheists in, in the Czech Republic. I, th I think this is extremely important when we think about curiosity. Have you ever thought about the questions that God asked Adam and Eve after the fall in Genesis 3? Isn't it interesting that God comes to them and he's asking them questions. Does God need information? No, he doesn't. Does God know what happened? Yes. Does God know that they sinned? Yes. Does God know where they are? Yes. Is God playing a game? No. God says, where are you? Why did he do that? He wanted them to come to grips with the fact that they were way, way, way away from him. He continues to ask them these questions to, to bring them to a place of being ready to hear the message. That's exactly what happened. To get to the point where a guy like Nebuchadnezzar says, uh, uh, can you interpret the dreams? No, there's not a man alive that can interpret the dreams. But hey, wait a minute. Let me tell you something. There's a God. There's a God. We see this curiosity that I think many times we lack. Oftentimes when our kids do wrong, we, we Jesus juke them, right? We just, we just Jesus juke them. We're just, we're just, man, we're just, we're just throwing out, we're just throwing out these, these scripture bombs. We're not even trying to engage them to figure out what's going on in their heart. Is the Spirit doing anything in their heart? Has the Spirit generated, activated their conscience? Could we stop acting like the world has come to an end when our kids do some really dumb, bad stuff? Could maybe we be curious? The fact of the matter is, we see sin and our face turns red and our eyes get bloody and our voices go up and we think somehow we're going to scare the out of them. 
when maybe we need to seek an opportunity to enter into conversation, trust the Spirit of God at work, and then maybe we can get to a place where we can say, no, I don't have the answers, but there's a God in heaven who does. Maybe we could get to the place to say, yeah, you know what? You've got this fallen nature and take them back to Genesis 3. Maybe we could get to the place to say, yeah, you're... Now, some of you parents wouldn't do this. Maybe we could get to the place to say, you're, yeah, you're, you're a sinner. You're a sinner. And you need Jesus. And I can't save you. But there's a God in heaven who can save you. But all that's through this process of just, just, just pressing the brakes and stopping for a minute and recognizing that God is at work and us having conversations that lead us to a place where we can proclaim who is in control and we can proclaim what God's Word says. I love the conversation that we have at the end of this section. Are you able? And Daniel says, no, but, but. But, and this is, this is what Daniel has been waiting for. And this is where we want the conversation to end up when now Nebuchadnezzar's listening and now Daniel is going to proclaim and then Daniel is going to prove. Right? Are you able? No, but... King, you have a problem that no one on this earth can solve. The God of heaven gave you a dream. The God of heaven has given me your dream and in the interpretation of your dream. This dream was given to a pagan king, the plan of redemptive history. Not to prove how amazing Daniel is or not to prove how skilled Daniel is in debating the Bible or disproving or, dis, or debunking Paganism, paganism disproves itself, but to prove where the answer was, and the answer is found in God. The answer is found in the Word of God. The answer is found in the revelation of God. And he's able to look him in the eye, in exile, the threat of losing his life, and with all the confidence in the world, say, there's no help for you here on this earth. There's no help for you and your wise men. There's no help for you and your sorcerers. There's no help for you and your magicians. There's no help for you and the Chaldeans. There's no help for you apart from God to turn to him now and experience light and life and finally and we've already read it verses 29 to 30 from 20 from from anxiety to clarity the king is anxious the king is rolling around on his bed Daniel tells him everything that he saw to give authority to his communication of the dream and his interpretation of the dream let me let me just give you a, a, a minute of application here First of all, good news. Our God is a God who reveals himself and his plan to his children, to his church, to the world with great clarity. Let me, let me give you good news today to everyone sitting in this room. God is eager to make himself known, revelation, and no one can survive apart from the revelation of God. That is good news. That is good news. Secondly, I've got more good news. God has an open door policy. He invites you in Christ to come boldly to the throne of grace. It is God who loves being in relationship and fellowship with us. He loves for us to call on him in prayer. He delights in unleashing light and life. And he really loves it when we come to him as community. Thirdly, good news Things are not out of control. <laughs> this very day, and all that's going on around us, with kings that rule and what's going on politically and what's going on economically, this is all a part of the redemptive history and plan of God. From creation to fall to redemption to consummation. Good news, God always has a witness embedded in the situation. And while Israel has fallen and Israel is worse off than Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, and God can't reveal anything to a prophet in Israel, he's got to go to a pagan king to reveal his redemptive plan. God is still going to get his redemptive plan through. A Second Timothy chapter 4, there's going to come a time when men will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They're going to turn away from the truth. But God is always going to have a remnant. He's always going to have someone that he's going to communicate his good news through. 
And then finally, good news, you are not able. You are not able. (laughs) But God is. But God is. That's good news. That is the gospel. There's none righteous, no, not one. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but God is great in mercy. And he sent his son to live and to die and to be resurrected. And if we will trust him and not ourselves because we're not able, but he is, trust the one who is able. Trust the one who has laid down his life. Trust the one who loves you. Trust the one who calls you out of darkness into light. Trust the one who calls you out of death into light. Trust him today. We have this bowl and this this juice, this bread and this juice, and they represent the, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so every week we want to put on the brakes, put the thing in park, shut down our minds, shut down our desires, try to shut down everything that's going on around us and all the chatter and all the noise and just get quiet and remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. I, I don't know what you've done with your time this week. I don't know what it maybe stirs you up that you feel like you just can't handle, that you can't get over, that you can't make it through. But, but I want to tell you the most pressing issue that you face right now in this moment, the most pressing issue that you face right now in this moment is your sin. And you're being separated from a holy God. And what this represents is the life that Christ has given for us and to us and the life that we can have in him if we will trust him this morning. So when we come, we are just stopping everything, remembering that our greatest problem is our sin, remembering that our greatest need is to be saved from our sin, and remembering that Jesus Christ came and laid down his life as payment for our sin so that we could have his life. So, so try to stop everything. Try to put everything aside. Try to forget about everything for the next two or three minutes. And come up and grab a piece of bread that represents his body. Dip it in the juice that represents his blood. And ingest it. Put it in your mouth and taste it. And just soak that in, in your heart and in your mind and in your soul. And realize, ultimately at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. Your relationship with God the Father, through His Son, Jesus Christ. And let that remind you that the sweetest place that you will ever find to live on this earth is in fellowship with Him and with His people.